I don't know when the next Book Arts Press Lecture is going to be, because it's going to be sometime between now and the beginning of July, and it is going to be the premiere of our new teaching videotape, The Anatomy of a Book Format in the Hand Press Period, which is now finished and is being duplicated for sale. It will be sometime between now and the 15th of June. I'm not sure when, so stay tuned. The friends will get an announcement in the mail, and it will be posted on the bulletin boards. We have a schedule for the evening lectures during Rare Book School, running from the 8th of July until the 2nd of August. The speakers who will be uh, giving their lectures at 6 o'clock as usual on a Tuesday or a Wednesday or a Thursday include William Reese, the New Haven bookseller, G. Thomas Tansel, no stranger in these parts, Catherine Lieb, talking about the auction business in the 90s, Richard Wendorf, the librarian of the Houghton Library at Harvard, Fred Schreiber, who will be repeating the Rosenbach lectures, both of them, that he gave at the University of Pennsylvania in March, Susan Gosen, the proprietor of Dudenay Paper Mill, talking about the development of that operation, and Christopher Ridgway from Castle Howard, England, talking about Thomas Buick. The announcement for these lectures is going out sometime either this week or next week. Our lecturer this evening, as you know, is Professor Walter Bershen, speaking on Greek elements in medieval Latin manuscripts, the example of Verona. I told him it was going to be a short introduction. Thank you very much. You want slides right now? Yes. Some years ago, ladies and gentlemen, I tried to show in a lecture on kind invitation of Professor Somerville and Professor Christella, who both are here, to show Greek elements in medieval Latin manuscripts from almost all over Europe. Now I try the same basing only on manuscripts which are found at Verona or certainly during the Middle Ages have been there. Let us see what this one library can tell us about the Greek in the Latin Middle Ages. First slide, please. The Cathedral Library of Verona is the only late antique book collection which is still in its original place, one can this say cum grano salis. It preserves a manuscript of the Civitas Dei, you see on the slide, written either during Augustine's lifetime, that 430 of course, or shortly after his death. This manuscript is an old possession of Verona as the marginal Glosses, above all these two glosses, by a hand we believe to know, proof, and glosses, these glosses will will encounter repeatedly in this manuscript. Next slide. Another treasure of the fifth century is the purple codex of Verona. Um, codex of the old Latin uh, Bible version, Vetus Latina, the four Gospels in the old translation before Jerome. 
Again, this manuscript can be traced down at least to the earlier Middle Ages. It was used in the liturgy of the 9th century at the feast of the civic patron of Verona, St. Zeno, as you know, and already displayed as a showpiece in the late Middle Ages. Next slide. A Verona vidi un libro antico nella sacristia, el Vangeliario in carte del color del vestimento di Gesù, tutte le lettere d'argento e ove si nominava il nome di Gesù erano lettere d'oro. This fine collegiological remarks were made by Bernardine of Siena in the 15th century. And he saw quite well that the use of the golden ink is uh, restrained on the names of God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and one text of the New uh, Testament, of the New Covenant, um, the text which is believed to be the authentic word of God. You see it here. Pater noster qui es in semis sanctificetur nomen tuum in all four gospels. This passage and only this passage beside the nomina sacra is written in golden letters. Next slide. The third great manuscript of Verona of the fifth century is the psalm commentary of Hilary written by a very cultivated professional scribe named Oitalius. Oitalius. Scribit Antiquarius Oitalius, who produced a veritable piece of book art of ascetic beauty. And with this manuscript, I have reached the topic of my lecture. Next slide. Hilary of Poitiers explains in Psalm 118 the verse deduc me in semita mandatorum tuorum deduc me in semita mandatorum tuorum he criticizes the Latin translation and to make clear his point, has recourse to the Greek text, which the scribe has copied beautifully, but with some mistakes. Odesseison me, instead of Odegeson me, e tribus, which should read Odegeson me en tribo. One of the artistic techniques applied by this scribe is to indent the citations a bit more than the width of a letter and to carry out the first line in red. Only rarely does he write more than one line in red as it is done with the Greek citation which is indented in its full length over both lines and written in red over both lines. The same manuscript you also find, next slide, the letters 
the most known Greek letters um, in the West during the Middle Ages, Alpha and Omega, and of course he wrote as a ligature for the name of Christ. Hilary was considered a great church father in the fifth century. His fame in late antiquity is also reflected by the fact that the Biblioteca Capitolare owns a second Hilary manuscript, next slide, also dating from the fifth century, containing De Trinitate, which also contains a Grecum. Hotheos tu curiu hemon Jesu Christu ho pater tes Hilary quotes these verbs which a Latin Christian understood even without much knowledge of Greek to explain the fundamental syntactical difference between Latin and Greek. The Latins do not have the article which the Greeks do. Hilary is enough of a philologist to show his readers what it would like if the Latins did have the article. He uses the strong demonstrative pronoun ille, which 500 years later, in fact, became the definite article almost in all Romans languages. And he translates so, Ille Deus, Ilius Domini Nostri, Jesu Christi, Ille Pater, Ilius Claritatis must have sound terrible in the ears of a Roman, but it's a fine piece of philological demonstration of differences between Greek on the one side, modern languages on the one side, and Latin, archaic Latin, and of course Russian has no article on the other side. These words not only imitate Greek syntactically, but also contain Greek elements in the way they spell the holy names, the nomina sacra of Jesus. Jesus. The age is not a Latin age. Age has nothing to do with the name of Jesus, but that is a Greek eta. And Christu, in the, in the name of Christ, there is no X and there is no P, and that these are not the Latin letters X and P, but the Greek he and Rho. Hilary's use of the article ille, Deus, Ilius, Domini is unusual as the graticizing manner, however, of disguising the nomina sacra is common during late antiquity, the Middle Ages, and occasionally also in modern times. In this Hillary Codex, Greek is not highlighted graphically. It is indented as are the norm normal stations. You scarcely recognize Greek at first sight, for the scribe uses the same angel for the Greek text as for the Latin. Thus, this text demonstrates Greco-Latin milieu of the Mediterranean area in late antiquity, through the person of the author, 
who was for many years in the Eastern Mediterranean and brought back from there the hymnody, the Latin hymnody. Then through the form of the script, because the same Anschel script is used for Greek and Latin, a Christian world script, so to speak, as Ludwig Traube said, and through its contents, because Greek was used to explain Latin and vice versa. Next slide. <clears throat> One of the characteristics of Latin literature of late antiquity is to refer to Greek, but often in quite an elementary way. This can be illustrated with manuscript 51 of the Bibliotheca Capitolare, another very, very rare book of Veronese tradition. The codex is, let me quote from a facsimile, le seul livre arien latin que nous ayons conservé intact, the only Arian Latin book entirely preserved. It must also be dated to the 5th century, as I believe. Here you find a text attributed to the Arian bishop, Maximin, the biographer of Wulfila, apostle of the Visigothics, Contra Pacanus, in which the very old Christian fish symbol is interpreted in its five-fold reference to Christ. Nam et literarum ipsarum grecarum considera ingens mysterium. Considera ingens mysterium. I, Iota, hoc est Jesus. He, he, it est Christus. Te, Theta, Teu. Then there is lacking something. Here we ought to invent Y or Y, the transcription of the name of the Greek letter, and then Eos, Sigma, Summa, Soter, Quod Latine Explanatur, Jesus Christus Dei Filius Salvator, in capite iste litere continentur Grece, ich tus. These five letters of the Greek name of the fish give five titles of Christ as Son of God and Redeemer. The cursive notes, and that's important, especially on this page, show that uh, there was a special interest upon this item. Next line. The most important Greco-Latinum of the Veronese Library dates from around 600. It's exactly manuscript one. One of the many bilingual psalters of the Middle Ages. It is the oldest preserved manuscript <coughs> of a Greek-Latin psalter. Greek appears always on the left as the leading side, Latin on the right. Each colon has exactly its counterpart as are the commas, isakuson hoteos, ex audideus, Greek, ex audideus, and so line by line, tes deseos mu, 
deprecationem meam, and so on. You can control the meaning of the Greek text by comparing it word for word with the Latin. This is further simplified by the fact that the Greek text is, as you already saw, is reproduced in Roman letters. The transcription shows slight deviations from the classical orthography, isakuson instead of eisakuson. Here, Jotacism plays an important part. The manuscript was much studied throughout the Middle Ages, as is shown by the many corrections, restorations, and annotations. For example, on the left side of our slide, a corrector, a strong adherent of Jotacism, replaced E by I almost line for line. Here, for example, E is replaced by a stroke that signifies I. Next slide. One corrector of the early 9th century was so brave as to correct thoroughly the 39th Psalm and to interfere with the Latin texts respectively. For his corrections, he did not respect the characteristic Anschel script, but self-confidently used his Carolingian, his new Carolingian minuscule. Deus meus, but also on the Greek page, always the same scribe introduces Caroline minuscule. We have already encountered this scribe in the manuscript I named and mentioned first, namely Augustine Civitas Dei. He seems to be the well-known archdeacon Pacificus of Verona. As is now certain, who added whole verses both in Greek and Latin. Next slide. This is again the same script of Pacificus, and here he was keen enough to add Greek and Latin verses, which uh, the original scribe had forgotten. Next slide. This much studied codex seems to have become illegible rather early, though that several leaves had to be restored around 800 or written anew and sound in at the place of the old corrupted ones. There you see a restoration that the original page around, written around 600 and at left the Greek text is a Carolingian <coughs> restoration, a Carolingian Caroline imitation of Anschlo around 800. Next slide. There are also many annotations and supplements in this codex. For example, on the verso of folio 1, a Greek paternoster in Latin letters, pater, himon, iotacism, hoenois, uranois, and so on. And an alphabet from alpha to omega and backwards from omega to alpha. 
as Isidore of Seville yeah, in his Etymologie had explained uh, ego sum alpha et omega which appears three times in the Bible and the apocalypse has appeared alpha and omega are uh, a notion for a god who rolls history up from alpha to omega and again back from omega to alpha at the end of the world. Most interesting idea. Next slide. On the folio two, we find two Greek doxologies, doxa patrikeio ke pneumatia geo, written two times. On the top, um, almost unknown paternoster in uh, South Slavonic language, uh, not yet quite determined. Next slide. Uh, rather, uh, we find on ma the margin of another folio, again a Greek alphabet in Greek magic school. This one. And next slide. A rather modern hand who was accustomed to use accents and spiritus asper, ho Macarius, uh, Macarius aner, the first two words of the Greek psalter written by a rather modern hand of a Greek. Next slide. One finds even a series of pictures in this manuscript, and I show you four. A zoomorphic John. Johannes. It must be John. Depicted as a bird man. Next slide. A grazing antelope or similar animal. Next slide. A lion. And next slide. A woman. Maybe transformations of the four symbols of the gospel writers, evangelists. There is no conclusive evidence that any of the Veronese manuscripts I have dealt with so far were produced in Verona. Thus I have uh, listed them in an order of growing probability. It's quite likely already that the Aryan manuscript 51 was written for the city of Verona, which was so important for the Ostrogothic realm. As far as the Greco-Latin Psalter, our slide is concerned, the early intense usage by Veronese scribes is an evidence for the fact that the manuscript was already there in the 8th century. Now, next slide. We can prove that Greek was studied in Verona with a manuscript which is no longer kept in Verona but what produced there. It is now at St. Gall in the Stiftsbibliothek. It was written under the Bishop Egino of Verona, one of uh, the several um, bishops of Alemannic origin which under Charlemagne got bishoprics in Italy. He was bishop until 999, then uh, retired on the beautiful island of Reichenau, where he is buried 
if you know the island of Reichenau and the Lake Constance in South Germany, you perhaps know Reichenau, Niederzell. That's exactly the church he has built for himself. In this manuscript, one finds an interpretatio psalmi centesimi decimi octavi per singulas literas with the Hebrew and the Greek alphabet in parallel order, which of course shows mistakes. The writer did, for example, not know what to do with lambda. And so he wrote alpha again, but nevertheless indicates a first step in the direction of basic study of Greek. Next slide. That's uh, the second uh, page of uh, this uh, manuscript with the alphabet uh, written under Egino. Next slide. And now a very typical Veronese uh, page, um, which has got uh, in the ninth <coughs> century these almost erased edition. With Bishop Egenor of Verona, a new epoch of writing culture starts, and it is in this time that we have to date, as I believe, the entries in Greek letters, which we count in two old Veronese manuscripts. There is the Angel Codex of Verona, number two, um, Book of the Kings. We find on the verso of folio one, under this typical Veronese uh, script of the 8th century before Caroline Minus School came, came, an entry in Greek letters which can be read under the lamp um, as I believe as follow. There perhaps you can control me a little bit on the slide. Placebo, Domino, in regionem vivorum. Second line, ego. Really nothing to be seen. Autem in domino gaudebo gloriabor. That is Latin, of course, written in Greek letters, a playful, as I would say, ornamental usage of the Greek alphabet as a cipher code. The first line is a citation from a psalter, Placebo Domino in Regione Vivorum, which was very well known as part of the funeral rites. Second line, Ego Autem in Domino Gloriabor Gaudibo, is similar to a citation from Habakkuk, Ego Autem in Domino Gaudibo, and so on. The form of the letters is very deficient. Even almost elementary peculiarities of Greek are disregarded. Nevertheless, we have evidence of some study of Greek. Who this scribe was, next slide, can be learned now from a second entry I found in another manuscript, the Sacramentarium Leonianum, un ancient manuscript of the 6th century, which has at left on the top, an entry written by the same thin, pale hand, trying Greek magic school, 
similar to rustic capitals, using sometimes Latin letters. That's a Latin D, not a Greek delta. And it reads in Dei nomine rat pert. Second line. Rat pert, clericus, end of the second, beginning of the third line. Trudus, and last line, eginoni. In Dei nomine rat pert, clericus, trudus, eginoni. With this cleric Ratpert, we also know the name of the scribe of the encoded entry of the codex we saw the last slide. Even more important is the name of the Eteresi in the last line. It is our Bishop Egino. And this can scarcely be anybody else as but this uh, Bishop Egino of Verona, that 802 on Reichenau. Ratbert, who calls himself a true servant of Egino Trudus, medieval Latin word, wrote this in Verona, presumably before the year when Egino renounced his office in 999. This Ratbert also seems to have written some entries in the Greek Latin Psalter, and so we can, uh, by this uh, adoracy, date uh, these Greek studies. Next slide. Shortly afterwards, around 820, the great organizer of the scriptoria in Verona was the aforementioned Pacificus of Verona. I apologize for the poor quality of this slide. It's, of course, taken from a xerocopy, but it is enormous useful that the unique document which shows the subscription of Pacificus. It belonged first to Verona, then to uh, Venezia, Venice, and came in the Vatican archives, uh, Cancelleria della Nunziatura Veneta Documento, and so on. There we have him, Ego, Pacificus, Archidiaconus, Rogatus, and so on. And um, this very special, very individual script uh, allows us to identify his hand uh, in a, a lot of uh, Veronese manuscripts. Next slide. Thus, uh, for example, to return to slide number one, you see the Civitas Dei of the fifth century. Uh, this document I showed in the last slide allows us to say the writer of these two glosses is uh, Pacificus of Verona. And uh, the content of uh, the notes uh, becomes uh, very interesting by knowing the author. Let's try uh, to read at least one, Quod Spiritus Sanctus et, this Quod Spiritus Sanctus et, the ampersand at Patris, another ampersand at at Filii Spiritus Sit. This note might have something to do with the question of the introduction of the filioque into the creed most discussed at that time. Next slide. 
in a fine Augustine codex uh, number 30 in Verona, characteristic for the golden age of the Carolingian scriptorium of Verona, Pacificus annotated uh, one of the most famous passages of the Era Nationis in Psalmos, where Augustine explains the connection between the name of Adam and the four corners of the world. First, uh, the text, beginning from the top, Orbis partes has in capite literas habent, Anatole dicunt orientem, disis occidentem, Arcton aquilonem mesembria meridiem, habes Adam. Ipse ergo Adam toto orbe terrarum sparsus est. In uno loco fuit, cecidit, et quodammodo cominutus implebit. He writes, instead of implebit, calligraphers are not very attentive uh, uh, scribes, implevit uh, orbem terrarum and so on. The parts of the world have these letters in the beginning. Anatole stands for east, Desis for west, Arcton for north and Mesembria for south. There you get by the initials of these four words Adam. Thus this Adam is spread all over the world. He was on one place fell and as it were was scattered all over the world but God's mercy gathered the broken pieces from everywhere Pacificus now on the margin extracted the Greek names of the four corners of the world from this passage and wrote them down in the margin one below the other Anatole, east Desis, west Arcton, north, Mesembria, south. In such a manner that it could be read as an acrostic, the first letters give Adam. The interpretation of the name of the first man was one of Augustine's favorite exercises. Next slide, he also mentions it in his interpretation of the Gospel of John when we open the Veronese manuscript of the 9th century at this passage, we will see that even here, Augustine's interpretation of the name of Adam was of special interest to the reader. Nota de nomine Adam. Next slide. And here uh, you see from the notes and from the emendations that exactly this passage was studied quite well. Next slide. Another example of Veronese gloss work, um, unedited Veronese gloss work, of course, has to do with the linguistic problems, has not to do with linguistic problems, but with Greco-Latin cultural history. In Augustine's commentary on the Psalms, Pacificus wrote on the margin of one folio De si mulacris non ad orandis. And next slide. Ut angelus non, that's non, stroke collator. That has, as I think, something to do 
with the Greek iconoclasm of the 8th and early 9th century and the Western dispute on the veneration of images, what is meant with the keyword of Libri Carolini, well known under students of medieval things. Next slide. According to his tomb inscription found in the Cathedral of Verona, Pacificus has been archdeacon in Verona for 43 years. Archdeacon, that meant that he was the second in the clerical hierarchy of the bishopric. In the spiritual hierarchy, he was the first for more than a generation. When he died in 844 or 46, one used his tomb inscription seen in stone as a huge epitaph in the cathedral of Verona, but one must know where it's a very, very dark place and very high. Um, one used his tomb inscription to hint at his interest for the three holy languages by writing his name in these three languages, in Latin as Pacificus, in the Greek equivalent Irenaeus, and the Hebrew word Salomon. We now come in the 10th century, where the tumultuous Ratbert of Verona was bishop in the town on the edge. At this time, an entry was made in the Ancel Canon Manuscript 60 of the 8th century. The entry is found below on these two pages. And here is determined that when traveling, bishops had to prove their identity by producing the so-called epistola formata. Ut presbytere diaconi et subdiaconi aut colibet, instead of quilibet, clerici non pergant in consulto episcopo suo. Ut episcopus a propria ecclesia non discedat longe in peregrinatione, nisi a metropolitano formatam. That's the letter of recommendation in late antiquity and early middle ages, epistola formata sumpsurit. Neque episcopus de transmare suscipiatur, nisi viginti episcoporum cirographa subtus ostenderit. Sivero Romanus furit sufficiat solius metropolitani formata. passage, if he were a Roman, it would suffice to produce the letter of recommendation of one archbishop, that's the archbishop of Rome, the Pope. The Epistola Formata was a letter of recommendation encoded with the help of the numeral value of Greek letters. Next slide. One had to know at least the Greek alphabet and the numeral value of the Greek letters. And of course, our instructions on how to write such an epistola formata we found in a Veronese manuscript, 64, from the early 11th century, as well at the end of this manuscript, an alphabet 
with the numerical value of the Greek letters. Here one could find that alpha is one, that beta is two, that gamma is three, and that six is, of course, not a Greek letter, but a special sign, and so on. Next slide. At approximately the same time an entry was made into a sequentiary of Verona, there we find, find at the beginning a Greek sanctus in Latin letters. Theos Sabaot Hosanna the text is provided with neums, with neums. It was therefore meant to be sung. Thus we find an element of the so-called Missa Greca also in Verona. The Missa Greca was a form of Greco-Latin liturgy invented in the Carolingian age, presumably not in uh, Saint-Denis, as is the older opinion, but in Saint-Amand on the northern frontier of uh, France. Uh, the Missa Greca was especially popular during the Atonian period, 10th century and early 11th century, and uh, also in Verona, now one element of this Missa Greca is found. During the 12th and 13th century, all these Greek traces and elements have indeed been preserved, perhaps even noticed and studied. It seems, however, that no new Greek or Grecizing element has been added. There is no Veronese among the great Italian translators in the 12th century Constantinople, or among the Latin missionaries working in the 13th century in the Greek East. But in the 14th century, let us try off the slide, it, it could be done, that's a problematic slide, 35, does not work? Oh yes, here it is. But in the 14th century, it was in Verona that Petrarch met Nicolaus Sigaros, the ambassador of the emperor of Constantinople, who knew of Petrarch's yearning for Homer, the father of poetry. Sigaros provided Petrarch with the long sought after Homer, and the Greek codex out of the possession of Petrarch has been rediscovered and is preserved as it seems in this Milanese uh, manuscript of the Bibliotheca Ambrosiana. Petrarch embraced his Homer, this manuscript in tears. He could not read him, but he adored him. Homerus tuus apud memutus, immo vero ego apud illum surdus sum. I cannot hear him. Gaudio tamen vel aspectu solo, et sepe illum amplexus ac suspirans dico, 
O magne vir quam cupite de audirem. How should I like to hear you? But he did not know Greek. Uh, he opened the door for the study of Greek by his passion for Greek, but of course um, he did uh, not know more Greek than many people of the Middle Ages. He knew the alphabet and uh, some words, but not much more. With Petrarch, the interest of the Westerners in Greek changed. The Greek Psalter and theology in general were no longer in the center of this new interest. But Greek philosopher, as, you, as we know, uh, Greek philosophy by the studies of Professor Christeller, poetry, historiography. The liturgical, playful, ornamental, that is the typical medieval Greek, was replaced by the language adopted grammatically. The purpose of Greek studies was no longer to decipher the secrets of the words Ichthus or Adam, nor to sing the Missa Grega or Hagios Hoteos, Hagios Isioros, Hagios Athanatos, Eleison Imas, but to be able to read Homer. Last slide. In the year of Petrarch's death, in 1374, Guarino Guarini was born in Verona. He incorporated all that, as far as old languages are concerned, Petrarch had in mind. The mastering of Latin and ancient Greek as perfectly as possible. He was a disciple of Manuel Crisoloras, the first great Greek teacher in the West of the second millennium, and he was who revised Chrysolora's Greek manual, Erotemata Tes Hellenikes Glosses, in a bilingual way, so said as a Latin scholar, one could study this grammar himself. In the edition revised by Guarino da Verona, this grammar of Manuel Chrysolora's became the book which the humanists of the 14th century and 15th century also used for learning. Do not know. Humanists did not like to talk of their medieval predecessors. The great lasting accomplishment of humanism was in fact that Greek literature was read again in the West. One can well understand that for a humanist, the medieval linguistic studies were not worth mentioning. They were, for them, virtually non-existent. Nevertheless, it would be an oversimplification, another humanist legend, as it were, if we would say, as we have said long time, for many centuries, the Middle Ages had no knowledge of Greek or with the words of Leonardo Bruni, Disciplina Grecarum Literarum Septingentos Iam Annos Nulla Nostros Abut Homines Habibatur. It is, however, correct to say that the millennium before 400 after Christ and 1400 knew much less Greek than the following humanist era and had other interests. The Veronese cathedral manuscripts 
contain characteristic examples of the kind of Greek studies medieval scholars were interested in. They give an idea of the Greek elements that could be present in the Latin Middle Ages. Thank you for listening. storage and that gets everybody into a into an argument um, and each member of the faculty will say that's nice but not my materials uh, send somebody else's and so what we what we've tried to frame the discussion uh, in another way and, and and the way we're trying to frame it is is um, is that what we need to do now at the uh, is to rethink the purpose of 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 Widener to rethink the purpose of, uh, of Lamont and Houghton, which is our rare books library, uh, to rethink the purpose of these libraries in the next uh, decade and in the 21st century, because they were all constructed and put into place during the, uh, inf during the industrial age. They're all 40, 50 years old. They've served their, uh, they have served their um, purposes well during that time and now they their purposes need to be re-examined and brought up to date and we need a new grand plan uh, for the libraries for the for the 21st century I mean that sounds grandiose but it is but that's simply what what needs to be done so we need to actually think about um, what this, um, uh, what the purpose of this uh, uh, limited space is in the yard? What's the purpose of, of Widener? Is it to be used as a storage building? The answer is no. We need to rethink. Um, what are the collections? We need to rethink a kind of a. If if you're going to have a capacity for th three, four million browsable books, what should those books be? And obviously, it should be all of the guidebooks and the bibliographies and everything that you need for the keys to the to to the collection and you should also and it's not a question of lesser used books or more used books 
It's a, it's a collection of which books can only be used uh, uh, through browsing, even if they're lesser used. Those you should keep in the browsable collections, and the others can be sent to the storage uh, uh, library, where they, by the way, are not browsable. They, it's a, this is a very mechanical kind of, uh, of, uh, of structure, but I think I might be exceeding my time here and everybody's patience. But uh, Terry? Terry, it wasn't the... It started as a closed path library, too. It only that so makes you the first, not the last. All right. That makes more sense. But my question is a simpler one. Who is Roy Larson, please, and can we meet him? He's uh, he's he's not he's no longer with us. Roy Larson was the uh, uh, chairman and founder of Time Life, and. Um, and was a uh, Harvard uh, graduate and one of uh, the great uh, donors and supporters of the Harvard Library. I might say, incidentally, also of the New York Public Library. Uh, was a very generous um, uh, uh, donor there and, and left. No, uh, Y.T. Fang was the first. Uh, you know, it's an endowed position, and uh, she, she was the first holder of it, and I'm the second. One more question. Yeah, um, one of one of the perennial solutions uh, to to the myth of the independent library is interlibrary cooperation, uh, the consortium, things like RLG, with respect to which Harvard has a particularly speckled uh, history. Uh, <laughs> And uh, I was wondering how... Not my responsibility. <laughs> well, okay, Doug Bryant... No, no. There no, 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 I, uh, I assume responsibility for everything. Uh, what, what, what do you make of this? Uh, because in one sense it is, as you, I think, have yourself yeah. known in some yeah. of your writing, interorganizational commitments are still commitments. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not sure what the thrust of your question, but let me respond in, in, in this way. Uh, I'm, I am a firm believer that, that, um, that, that no library can be autonomous. I mean, the, the, the field has just gotten, there's so much material, it's so complicated. I mean, it's, it sounds like a, it sounds so trite, and yet it's true, but, but it was apparently not a lesson that uh, that was really uh, has yet been learned at, uh, at Harvard. Hence, their their um, uh, Harvard was in a unique uh, position in that it, it had the resources to continue uh, building its comprehensive collections long after most of the other libraries had had to do some serious uh, uh, cutting back, and so that's why their commitment to to resource sharing and cooperative ventures was was less than uh, uh, was less than hot, uh, but that's uh, that's changing now. Now that there's a new librarian there, <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm very much committed uh, uh, to this, um, uh, and um, uh, the there simply just isn't possible for any one library to 
to, to do this. This is a collective enterprise that, that, that we're engaged in. Uh, the technology and everything else is, is pushing us in, in that direction. And so I, I, I'm not sure if I answered the question you were asking. But. Dick, thank you very much for joining us this evening. Some of you have class in a few minutes, but we're going to be next door for, uh, for a while, and I'd like for you to take advantage of the opportunity to meet one of our most distinguished uh, alums and ask that private question that you weren't willing to share with the rest of us. Thank you.